Matthew chapter 2. We're going to read the entire chapter. And um, we're not really doing a Christmas series as such. It's just going to be a bunch of messages, sort of dist- slightly standalone, really, around the whole theme. Um, so I want to jump in slightly out of sequence and just speak from Matthew 2 about the coming of the Magi. Let's read. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, or magi, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and there remained until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. So that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. The coming of Jesus, the arrival of this baby, what was it? How can you think of it? What happened when Jesus was born? What was it all about? Well, there are basically two sort of pole views on this, both of which are wrong. But one of them is uh, that it was just a myth or a legend. There are certain people who, with a serious face, will tell you that none of these things happened and that Jesus didn't exist. And, uh, of course, it's, it's not true to the facts or to the history 
And uh, you don't have to do much um, historical reading to understand that that, that simply isn't the case. Um, that there is more sort of textual manuscript and historical evidence for Jesus than there is for um, many, many of the ancient figures we take for granted, like men like Alexander the Great and the stories that surround him. So I, I think we're, we're quite comfortable as Christians to say, no, we, we think these things happened and we don't, we don't describe them as myth or legend. I always love um, how particularly C.S. Lewis commented on this, a man who was steeped in myth and, and fantasy literature. And he, when he read the Gospels and he was professor of English at, at, at Oxford University and understood these things, he said they didn't have the feel of uh, sort of fantastical literature um, like he'd been reading his whole life. But then there are other people at the other end of the spectrum who, who look at this and just say, well, clearly a person was born, <clears throat> but it was just a normal birth. Um, but that whatever, whatever people said about him, clearly this was just a normal guy and something got blown out of proportion. When, um, when my uh, wife gave birth to Isla, our youngest, uh, she, she, was, she came quickly. We, um, we were hosting friends for a barbecue. They stayed till about 5.30 and uh, she was feeling these things going on. And uh, we, we, we kind of took it easy until until we were leaving the house in a panic and she was getting angry with me and shouting at me and like it was like things suddenly got chaotic at around 7 p.m. So we saw our friends. Less than two hours later, things were starting to get chaotic. We got into a hospital room at half seven and she gave birth uh, within about 12 minutes. And, um, and Isla came out. She came out in, in the amniotic sac, which is um, the thing that you used to be in. The, um, inside your mother. So it's a bag that you were in full of the liquid. It's what usually bursts when your waters go before you give birth, and it hadn't burst. So Isla just slipped out as she was whole in the sack, and the midwife saw her face like this pressed up against, <laughs> pressed up against the, the uh, clear sack and, and gasped and said, I've never seen this before. I've never seen this before. Well, it's unlikely because it happens once every tens and tens of thousands of babies. So it's a very unusual thing to happen. But however unusual and special my daughter is, and she's very <laughs> unusual and special and lovely, however unusual that is, nothing compares with the bizarre circumstances that surround the birth of Jesus Christ. So we don't want to say that it's fantastical. We don't want to say it's ordinary. So what on earth is this? What is this birth about? What is happening? And I want to say that the most important thing you must understand about the birth of Jesus Christ is that it marks a moment when God made a claim on, on you and on this planet. It's, to my mind, it's a little bit like the raising of a flag. You ever seen the bronze statue of the U.S. Marines? Um, the raising of the flag on Iwo Jima, it's called. And it's five Marines stood with their flag just about poised to be put into the erect position on the mountain in Japan. And uh, it's a very famous statue, but it's based on an even more famous photo that was taken in 1945, and, uh, which won a Pulitzer Prize as these men were putting the flag up. And uh, three of the men died within a few days of that photo being taken. But it, it was marking a moment, a moment of hope and a moment of victory in what was, what was a very, very bloody war. Uh, similarly, the flag that was put up by Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong on the moon, shortly after they stated, Neil Armstrong stated, there's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind, and they planted a flag on the moon, which if you've seen the conspiracy programs, is waving in the wind, even though <laughs> there's no wind on the moon. So did it really happen or not? We'll never know, will we? But anyway, a flag, flag was planted on the moon, and it marks 
I, it makes me wonder: Does the moon belong to America now? <laughs> I think certainly Americans. Donald Trump would certainly say yes, wouldn't he? The moon, it's ours. Yeah. So, when Jesus was born in the world, what it marks above all is a moment when God made a claim on the planet, and also, as a follow-on to that, He made a claim on you. That's what the birth of Jesus is fundamentally about. That's why it's so important in history. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Because God came in and launched a counter-offensive against the powers of darkness and planted his son on earth to reclaim the planet. It's a beautiful image, isn't it, to think of it that way. Now, what I want to do is just consider through the lens of this story how you might respond to that claim upon you. And I want us to think about the fear of unbelief, and the happiness of surrender, and then the love of God. Those are the three things we're going to think about. Firstly, the fear of unbelief. Here's a man called Herod, who'd been reigning for some time in Israel. Not a Jewish man, but a, a king that the Romans had allowed to reign there. And a very, very twisted man. He was a kind of the archetypical paranoid dictator, actually. So you kind of picture in your mind Kim Jong-un merged with Robert Mugabe, and this is the kind of man you have in King Herod. He was willing to put to death members of his own family if anyone was in any way threatening his sense of security as the despotic ruler of Israel at the time. So this is the kind of twisted mind that we're dealing with here. But here's the thing I want to suggest to you. So what we're looking at here in terms of the way he responds to the birth of Jesus, that really he stands there as a type of what, it, what everyone is like when they, when they run away from or reject the claims of Jesus. In a way, any one of you can become like Herod. Even you know the sweetest uh, old granny who's been going to church her whole life but who has not surrendered her life to Jesus is in some ways more like Herod then she is like the Magi. I want to show you what I mean by that. I want to show you some of the characteristics of his response to the birth of Christ and show you how these things are in common with everybody who rejects the claims of Jesus. Firstly, there's his, his fear. Did you see how it said in verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, so the Magi told him about this king, who's been, this little child who's been born, king of the Jews, and that obviously tripped off his, his mind suddenly went spinning off into a, a panic. A king of the Jews. I'm the king of the Jews. Who's this child? It says, when Herod, the king heard this, he was troubled. He was afraid. His spirit was disturbed. And all Jerusalem, it says, with him. Why is he so afraid? What does that fear have to do with you? Well, he's afraid because it speaks of the loss, the threat to his autonomy. His rule, not only over Israel, but also, of course, his rule over himself. He's had to submit to just about nobody except the Roman emperor. And here, suddenly, he's hearing about a child, a baby, who he's been called upon to submit to. And what it shows you is that when people reject God, usually, it's not an intellectual reason. I think on Wednesday night, when Tanya... um, did the apologetics night, the assault live event, and talked about some of the intellectual reasons why people reject faith and sort of tried to deal with them fairly rapidly. 
I think she was doing a valid thing, but she would agree with me that really the real fundamental reason so many people reject Jesus is not for intellectual reasons, it's because of emotional reasons. Herod's first response was this inward panic about why he would not want to surrender his life to this person, why he would not want to bow to him, worship him, and honor him as God. It was a troubled emotional response. And actually, this actually fits with what psychologists understand about the way we work. I read a fascinating book last year um, called The Righteous Mind by a man called Jonathan Haidt, who's a, who's a, a Jewish uh, psychologist in America. Who, uh, his, his, his book is brilliant. It's a fascinating insight into the human mind and the way we function and the way we go about decision-making. And he says that, by and large, the way that we, we make decisions and the way that we uh, go through life is, is mainly with your emotional self. That, your, that emotional self is like a massive elephant underneath you, and you, your brain, your thinking, your intellect, your rationality is just a tiny rider on this massive elephant. And you think you're all brain, but he's saying actually you're mainly just intuition and emotion. And of course, things feed those intuitions, those emotions. Of course, you can change your mind on things. But he says most people make a decision and then reason after the fact why they think their decision was correct. And I think that's never more true than when it comes to religious matters. Most people in London who've rejected Jesus have not rejected him because they've dealt adequately with the facts around who he was and what he came to do and really wrestled at an intellectual level with the claims of Jesus. If they had done that, they would be able to give a better account for what Christianity is in the first place. And the fact that there's so much ignorance, even in a supposedly Christian nation, of what Christianity is, is proof enough that most of this nation has rejected Jesus mainly because of an emotional, instinctive reason, not because he's not worthy and not true. And the same may be true of you. It may be the case that just like Herod, how dare I put you in the same category, it may be said, but just like Herod, your first reaction might be panic and terror rather than cool, calm, careful thought about who this person was. There's his fear. Then there's also a second part of his reaction, his willful deafness. What do I mean? Well, the first thing Herod does, he summons all the scholars in Jerusalem, the Jewish scholars, gathers them in a room. It's probably the Sanhedrin, the council. He gathers them in a room and starts quizzing them. Where and when is the Messiah meant to be born? So he doesn't really know much about the Jewish heritage. And they open up their Bibles and they tell him correctly in Bethlehem of Judea. And so they, they, they cite this, this scripture from Micah 5. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. In other words, Herod is exposed to absolute facts about the, the proof, essentially, about who this baby is because he's reading prophecies that were written centuries before about where he's be born. In fact, even his question assumes that the prophecies must be true or else he wouldn't be interested in the prophecies. But despite knowing the truth about what he's being confronted with, he still wants to respond badly to who Jesus is. Now, the reason I stress this as a willful deafness is because many today also can see proofs about who God is. There's, as we were thinking on Wednesday night, there's the existence of the universe itself, inexplicable by the laws of logic and physics in and of itself as a self-creating thing. 
There's the fact of what we all take as a given, that there is such a thing as good and evil. But if you take that as a given, that there is good and that there is evil, then you have already assumed that there must be a, a moral lawgiver who has, who has spoken these things into existence. Otherwise, you have no right to believe that there's good and that there's evil. There's the facts, of the historical facts of Jesus and the resurrection in particular. I think you talk to most people in this room who, who have given serious thought to why they're a Christian. It's not going to be long before they tell you the resurrection. And if you asked me and sat me down and, and we, ha- we discussed the hundred reasons to be a Christian, basically the one I would want to get you back to fundamentally is the linchpin which holds the whole thing together is the resurrection, that Jesus rose from the dead. Attested in history, witnessed by many eyewitnesses. A world-changing event. How many, how many have really tangled with whether this took place or not? Come up with a, a viable theory, alternative theory to the truth of Jesus being raised from the dead that explains why so many men were willing to give their lives for this course, why the church came into existence. How many have tried to really wrestle with the, the first-hand texts and, and look at them? And Have you done that? Here are the proofs. that They're there in front of you. So what you do with them is up to you. You can, either, you can either honestly confront these things or you can be like Herod, a willful deafness. Can you see how that's, that's your basic choice with these things? There's enough there in front of you for you to do the work yourself and to recognize the greatness of these claims. And, and we could go on. There's many other things. So there's his, his, his fear, then there's his willful deafness, and finally there is his, his attempt at what, I want to describe to you as deicide. It happens later in the story that when he hears about being tricked by the wise men, he says he became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all the region who were two years old or under. So here's Herod's attempt to kill the Son of God. Killing a child is, of course, a heinous thing to do, but I don't think that we need to put this in the category of murder in the sense that This wasn't a cold-blooded, personal hatred type of thing that was going on here. What was really going on here was a power struggle with the living God. And an attempt on Herod's part at what you can call deicide, the murder of God. Friends, the reason why I want you to think about what that is and what that looks like is because the Bible says that for all people who, who do not love God and surrender to him, that in your heart you cannot be neutral to him. That there are basically only two ways you can go. You either love him in surrender or you are hostile to him in hatred. And Jesus said that hatred in the heart is basically murder. And you may say that doesn't sound like me and it doesn't sound like the way I respond to God. Listen to how the Bible describes it. It says, the mind that is set on the flesh, in other words, that wants to rule itself rather than be surrendered to God. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. In other words, what I'm trying to say to you is that the basic instinctive heart movement that took place within Herod 
where rather than surrender to the claims of this divine child, he wanted instead to kill those claims by killing the child, is the basic movement of your heart when you run away from God. Unbelief, what I'm trying to say to you is this, is not the fear of a victim, but the paranoia of a despot. That you are a despot in and of yourself, seeking to rule your own life, if you have not yet surrendered that life to the living God. I'm deliberately using the strongest expressions and terms and pictures here for you, because I think every one of us needs to be provoked to really think about what it means not to love God and not to love Jesus. I think we have to think deeply about this. It's the paranoia of a despot. Nirvana famously sang that just because you're paranoid don't mean they're not after you. You say, well, who's after you? God is after you. Those of us who've come to faith in God understand that he is in pursuit of your soul. We have experienced it in that way. A number of men through history have described it as the hound of heaven. You know how a dog can get the scent on his nose and is relentlessly in pursuit and pursuit and pursuit. And you can run and run and run, but God is in pursuit of you. Perhaps even now as you're sat there, you're thinking, there's something of a strange reaction in your heart to what I'm saying. A kind of a frustration or a, a flutter of emotion. A wrestling. What is this? If, all, if what I'm talking about is just nonsense, what is it? What's going on in your spirit? You're responding to truth. What will you do with it? That's Herod. That's the fear of unbelief. I want to show you also the wise men and the happiness of surrender. If Herod's a picture of unbelief, these wise men, unlikely though their story is, in the sense that they're the last people on the planet you would have thought would come to be worshippers of Jesus, Unlikely though this story is, they are a picture of the journey to faith that any one of us has experienced who's come to to love Jesus as Lord and Savior of our lives. First of all, just who were they? I'm going to say, admit straight up, I have no idea. The the chances are they were either Persian or Chaldean astrologers, men who studied the stars and uh, were kind of within their kind of spirituality and their understanding of what the stars meant and communicated. They were... They were considered to be wise men, magi, within their culture. It's possible if they were Persian that the reason they even knew anything about a savior coming was because the Jews had been exiled to Persia centuries earlier and something of their heritage and their expectation and their prophecies had seeped into the culture and, and become part of the lore of the, of, the, of the magi at the time. That's possible. We don't really know for sure. But whoever they were, they saw this unusual celestial object and were drawn to it and it resonated with something that they knew. This is very interesting, isn't it? Because obviously within all spiritualities, there's always some seeds of truth, even if they are not true in the whole. I'm not trying to say all religions are the same, far from it. What I'm saying is there is truth in every religion. And certainly there was truth in what they understood about the heavens and about, about spiritual reality. So here they are. And as soon as there is this amazing thing taking place, their hearts respond and they want to, to move along and to discover who this child is. So I want to show you a few things about the happiness of surrender. 
But first of all, there's a responsiveness to signs and whispers of the living God. A responsiveness to signs and whispers of God. It says in the first couple of verses how, uh, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he? He's been born king of the Jews, for we saw his star when it rose. And we've come to worship him. Now I think that God shows himself in all kinds of ways to us. This was a one-off event to show himself in a star. But God shows himself in all kinds of ways to, to all of us. He shows himself in tragedy. He shows himself in the good things that happen in your life. He shows himself in your conscience. You have a conscience and it speaks to you. And you wonder, where is this, where is this sense of conscience? What is going on inside my spirit that I feel I must respond to some being outside of me who is holier than me? He speaks to you in the hungers and the appetites of the soul. So that even in an age like ours, which is so locked into the belief that there, all there is is the material and the imminent, that there's nothing beyond it, the transcendent, even in an age like ours, we still wrestle with the lingering echo of a hunger of an age when we knew something about God. And we wonder, where does that come from? Why do I feel empty? Why do I feel this longing inside of me? It can come to you, God speaking to you in intellectual curiosity. Do you find that there are questions in your life that you cannot resolve? All kinds of ways that God can speak. Sometimes just in a sentence. I have a friend who told me that he came to faith because he heard the sentence, God loves you. And it was enough to work its way into his heart like a song that you can't get out of your mind. And churn away in his spirit until he understood that it was true. And that was the reason he came to Jesus. Amazing, isn't it? Three words, God loves you, and it changed his life. God whispers and speaks to us in all kinds of ways. And the only question that you need to ask yourself is whether you are responding to that. As those who believe in Jesus begin to respond. And then as they begin to respond, they experience it this, as a spiritual journey, as a kind of a searching or an inquiring to know about this God that they believe is, is communicating or is, is, is summoning them. We have stories of this in the Bible, this spiritual quest. A couple of my favorite moments in the book of Acts, one of the, of the Ethiopian eunuch, a man who'd gone to Jerusalem and he'd purchased himself a very expensive Isaiah scroll. Handwritten scroll. And on his way home back to Ethiopia to go and serve the queen, he's reading it and he doesn't understand what it's about, but there is this intellectual curiosity to know who is this person that's being spoken about in the scroll of Isaiah that had been written 700 years before as it describes a man who had die on behalf of, a, of the nation. And he, he's, he's curious. And then God brings alongside him Philip, luckily, Philip the evangelist. And Philip explains to him about Jesus, the one who died on behalf of the nation. And there and then, he comes to believe in Jesus. They find a, a body of water, a river or something, and he goes and gets baptized straight away. But he is responsive to the words that he's hearing. 
He wants to know what's the, what's the answer here. There's a man being spoken of here who would die for his people. Who is he and why did he do it? A little later in the book of Acts, we read the story of Paul on his missionary journey speaking to some Jewish men who had not heard about Jesus because they didn't live in Israel. They were called the Bereans. And these Jewish men hear these stories about a fellow Jew in the land of Israel who's died and then risen from the dead. And it says they go back to the scriptures to examine whether these things are so. In other words, they go back to their Hebrew Bibles and they carefully search out whether the things that Paul's telling them about the Messiah, that the Messiah would have to die and rise from the dead, are true to the scriptures. And the book of Acts describes them as noble. Why are they noble? Because they don't just dismiss it as nonsense. There's a responsiveness in their hearts. When they hear these claims about this man Jesus, they want to know it's true or not. They're not satisfied to dismiss it out of hand. They want to know if it's true. When you hear the whispers of God, as the Magi did, there must first be a responsiveness. It's quite in contrast to Herod's deafness, isn't it? Then there's, you see, for them next, there's the happiness at discovering what they were searching for all along. Can you see how when they arrive to find Jesus in the manger, whoever he was, I don't think he was in the manger by this point. He's probably a couple of years old. It says, after listening to the king, they went on the way. Behold, the star they seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Have you all experienced the amazing thrill when you finally find or understand or discover something that you were searching for? I remember years ago when um, my mom had a five-diamond ring and lost one of the diamonds that fell out of the ring in the home. And uh, she searched high and low. This thing was precious to her. And my older brother after searching for a couple of hours, suggested, why don't we look in the Hoover bag? So we emptied out the Hoover bag, a bag full of skin, right? That's essentially what <laughs> dust is. So it's, that's why I understand dust to be. It's mainly human skin in the home. It's just delightful. And we're <laughs> searching through, and then suddenly you see the twinkle of this diamond in amongst the dirt. And the joy, the thrill of discovery. The only greater joy I've seen is when we find one of Seth's missing, missing Lego pieces. <laughs> and he suddenly, suddenly his heart is no longer broken and he can go on and construct this thing. You know, when a scientist, you know, I don't know whether it's ever really happened in practice, when they shout, Eureka! When they discover some, some great discovery. That thrill, that emotional rush of finding something that you've been searching for your whole life. That is the happiness of what it means to come to know Jesus. For them, they felt that they had found God. And that is such a deep happiness because it meets, it meets your soul on every level that you need it to. It's firstly an intellectual discovery because you, you suddenly find that all of the questions you had in life suddenly makes sense. And even if you can't answer them all, you have a peace that they are answered in God. It's like when you, you finally crack it with a crossword or a Sudoku and you suddenly, 
intellectual, you feel that satisfaction. There's an intellectual relief at, some, at coming home to know who God is through Jesus. There's also a relational fulfillment that happens that gives you this joy. I was reading the story just last week of, um, in this past month in November, there's an old 102-year-old Holocaust survivor named Eliyahu, who is now resident in Israel. And he thought that all of his family had perished. The only potential survivor had been his brother, Wolf. And Wolf, upon being freed from the concentration camp in Warsaw, had found himself in a Siberian uh, camp in, in Russia. You think, how do you go from one situation like that to another? It's tragic, isn't it? But Eliyahu had just assumed that his brother Wolf had perished. But apparently he hadn't. Apparently he survived and lived and been freed from the, the, uh, the Siberian camp and had lived until 2011. Now, if the story stopped there, it would be a very sad one indeed, wouldn't it? So he survived, but I never got to see him. But Wolf had a son. And just this month, his son went to Israel to go and meet his uncle Eliyahu. And when his uncle was, met him, he says... You are the copy of your father. I haven't slept in the, the two nights waiting for you. 102-year-old man who finally meets a kindred, a nephew. And for those of us who come to know God, part of the reason why you have this incredible happiness is because you feel like an orphan in isolation until you are brought into the family of God and you suddenly know God as father and the church as, as your family. And that brings such deep joy. It really does. There's a relational fulfillment. And then there's also this emotional fulfillment. Emotions that you wrestle with on a day-to-day basis, which you do not understand. Like longings, like questions, like indignancy at injustice. Desires that are never fulfilled. All of these things that go on in the human spirit are indicators that there is something which must meet those desires. And you can search your whole life and never find those longings and those questions and those emotions find their resolution until you come to know God. Because you were made in His image. Your emotional life reflects and complements who God is. You were designed to know Him in intimate relationship. And finally, for these guys who respond and then have this incredible happiness at finding the baby Jesus, what it results in in their life, in contrast to Herod who tries to kill him, what it results in for the Magi is sincere worship. This is the the climax of what it means to come to know Jesus, is that you become a worshiper. Can you see how it says that going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. I don't know if it was even a conscious thing. They just, they were flawed. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. I want you to understand that their worship is a sincere worship because you know Herod was a faker. It said, he sent to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. A lot of people are like Herod these days, attend churches and go through the motions and, and, and uh, seem to be worshiping, but are actually just frauds, fakers. Herod was a faker because functionally he didn't want to surrender to Jesus, even if he claimed that he wanted to worship him. And that may be true for you as well. 
that you look like a worshiper on the outside, but actually, functionally, you're more like Herod and that you're running from him. But when you see the Magi worship, their worship is deep and sincere. It involves a few things. It involves the humbling of themselves, the humbling of yourself, because the first thing they do is fall down. So interesting, isn't it, how this is an instinctive, bodily reaction to who Jesus is. The Bible tells us that every one of us will bow the knee when we see him. I don't care, even the most intractable, dogmatic, anti-theist will one day see Jesus and fall down on their knees. They humbled themselves. Humility, of course, is something that begins in the heart, but it has to find expression in the body. This is why we lift our hands in worship. It's why you often feel you have to kneel in prayer. Sometimes you have to, feel you have to get on your face in prayer. All these things are things you see going on in the Bible as well because they're instinctive ways that you, through your body, acknowledge your humility before a holy God. If there's nothing in your life that you ever kneel to, then in effect, you don't see anything above you. But the relief when you find someone who's greater than you, who is worth kneeling before, they humble themselves. And then worship also always gives birth to language. Do you remember in the 90s how uh, Fat Boy Slim had the song, I need to praise you like I should. And I don't think it was a Christian song. I think... <laughs> It was about, I'm sure it was about uh, and the admiration of a woman. I need to praise you like I should. Because really, when you, when you admire someone passionately, you have to say something. Your words have to flow out. You have to express how extraordinary they are. A note to husbands who failed to do that recently. It involves spoken language. And this is why Christians sing. That's why worship has to be carried through your words. Of course, words can be insincere, but you can't worship without words. And then it it gives birth to giving. Can you see how they, they bring, I mean, this is very Middle Eastern, but I think it's also just part of the way God's wired us, that when you love something or someone, you have to give generously. And of course, the giving of these gifts, I mean, more important still is the giving of your life. God wants your life before he wants anything else. But then they also give of their treasures because it's a token of the gift of their own hearts, isn't it? It's a way of saying we honor you. How beautiful that they come and just lay their lives down in front of this child. I think, by the way, this is kind of an aside, but I think this this is probably the reason why we give gifts at Christmas, isn't it? Because of the way the Magi gave gifts to Jesus. Strangely, now, instead of giving them to Jesus, we just give them to each other. But I actually think that's a, a, an appropriate way of celebrating. I think festivity is a good thing. I think it's appropriate to be festive. I don't think it's particularly Christian to be Scrooge-like at Christmas time. I know it's not a biblical festival, but the, the, the truth is we are celebrating the birth of Jesus and it's worthy of celebration, isn't it? So here they come, they humble themselves, they speak words of praise, and then they give gifts to the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of this shows you the picture of what it means to respond to God rightly when you're confronted with the truth of who Jesus is. And we talked about 
the fear of unbelief, we've talked about the happiness of surrender, how these major I find real joy in being confronted with Jesus. I want to just bring this around in summary and talk finally about the love of God. Because the question that you need to wrestle with, especially if you're not a Christian, is how can we follow and be more like the Magi and not Herod when potentially it seems unappealing to you to follow God and to follow Jesus? And I think the only way is to understand, the only way is to understand his claim is not a threat on your life. It's It's a gift to you. The claim that God makes on your life, but putting Jesus in the world is not a threat to you. It may be a threat to part of who you are, undoubtedly. There's certain things you need to die to if you want to follow Jesus. And yes, there's a threat in that sense. But what you gain is far more. And what he tells us about the gift of Jesus to the world is that it is a gift to us of God's love. And I want you to help to see this through the lens of the three presents that the Magi gave that show you actually each of these gifts is not random. Each of them is a lens that tells you a little bit about who Jesus is. They're not random gifts. They're not just the first thing you found when you were shopping for your dad and you bought him those, those horrible socks again. These are gifts that are thoughtful and represent something of who Jesus is in his nature and what he is as a gift to the world. So although they're gifts to Jesus, they represent what he is as a gift to us. The gold festival, which speaks of his kingship, All the way through the Bible, gold is surrounded by and representative of authority and rule and kingship. And the claim here is that Jesus is, in fact, king. You saw it there in the scripture from Micah 5 where it said, From you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. God's gift to the world and to you is the opportunity to know Jesus as the king of your heart. A shepherd, a ruler. Someone you can surrender to gladly. And you may think, well, how can I surrender to somebody who I've never seen? Whose kingship is invisible to me. And I say, well, look, you can see his rule. You can see his kingship. You can see his authority in the same way that you see the wind. You don't see the wind directly, but what you see is its effects. And the rule of Jesus is rather like that, or like a magnet. You can't see a magnetic field, but you see its effects. You see the way iron filings stand to attention when a magnet is near them. And this is what the the rule of King Jesus is like. He comes to the lives of his people, and like iron filings, we stand to attention. Our hearts respond to his authority over us, and we find our purpose in response to his authority. The gold speaks of his kingship. The frankincense. Dan actually mentioned incense in the worship. It's the same kind of thing. Frankincense speaks of Jesus as our priest. Frankincense was made from the sap of a Boswellia tree where you score the tree and get the sap out of the tree. And it was made in, in the ingredients of incense in the Old Testament priestly laws. And the God's law said that no one was allowed to mix, make this mixture except for the priests. The priests alone were allowed to make this mixture and offer up this incense to God in the temple. And it speaks to us of the aroma that goes on with the sacrifices when the priest covers up the stench of our sin. 
and the stench of the blood that's shed in the temple. By burning incense, there's a pleasing fragrance that fills the temple courts and, so, and spills out into the streets beyond and has a pleasing aroma to God. What the Bible says about Jesus is that he has come to be a priest for us. Our lives would otherwise stench before God if we did not have a priest to raise up incense, to raise up prayers of intercession and the sweet aroma of his own intercession on your behalf. That you can become acceptable to God. And then finally the myrrh. You probably know from John 19, when Jesus is, is crucified and he's about to be buried, they use spices to anoint his body, his dead body. And one of the spices that was used at burial is the spice myrrh. And you think, what an unusual gift to give to a newly born child, a spice to anoint a dead body. When we were married, um, my wife is from sort of a Chinese ethnic heritage, and initially we wanted to have white flowers at the wedding. But in Chinese custom, white speaks of death. And so her grandma vetoed the white flowers, <laughs> as Chinese grandmothers are wont to do. They have that kind of power in families. Because it would seem inappropriate for half of our guests to have white flowers on display at a moment of celebration and of life rather than of something which communicates death. But there is something so appropriate about the giving of myrrh when these men bow down to this baby because they are preaching by their actions that this is the baby who was born in order that he might die. It's the purpose for which he came. So friends, what I'm encouraging you to understand is that because Jesus is the gift to us, there is no fear in surrender and submission to him as a person. Because God meant us good in giving us Jesus. And the life that you want to live will be unfulfilled until you discover, like the Magi did, his wonderful authority, his benevolent rule, his priestly love for you and his self-sacrifice when he died on the cross in your place. Why don't we bow our heads and pray? What I've been trying to communicate to you guys through the story is that at this time when we are reflecting on the gift of Jesus to the world, there is an invitation both to the person who is not a Christian and those who are Christians, and it's the same invitation. It's the invitation to be a worshiper. As I hand out the bread and the wine and communion, I want to encourage all of us to be more like the Magi than Herod. And to allow our hearts to bow to Jesus. And perhaps if you are not a Christian, I would want to encourage you to understand that you can respond to him today. That with your heart and with your lips, you can say to him, Lord Jesus, I want to surrender to you. 
And if you're not so sure, I want you to ask yourself why you wouldn't. Have you really given due consideration to his claims upon you? Have you really wrestled with the accounts of his life and of his death and of his burial and of his raising from the dead? But perhaps you're ready. I would encourage you to pray to him for the first time. You can pray something simple. You can just say, Lord Jesus, I give up running. I want you to be the ruler of my life today. It's as simple as that. You ask for forgiveness. You ask for his grace. For the rest of us who know and love him, why don't we just have a a moment of sweet surrender again and worship. Firstly, as we take communion, remember the body that was broken and bled and was buried for us. Eat the bread. Drink the wine. Know that The great significance of Christmas actually lies in the fact that he was born in order that he would die. 